We're going to learn a lot more about all of that, God making all things seen and unseen and making man particularly in his image in the months to come as we eventually transition into a study through the book of Genesis. I look forward to that very much. Uh, But today we are in Revelation chapter 21, and we'll be looking at verses 9 through 27. That is the sermon text, Revelation 21, 9 through 27. The Old Testament reading will be from Ezekiel. It'll be kind of scattered throughout it, Ezekiel 40, 1 through 6, 43, 1 through 12, and also 48, 35. You might just want to follow along and listen as I read. The Old Testament reading for today does come from the book of Ezekiel, as I've just said. When we read the sermon text for today, which is Revelation 21, 9 through 27, you'll quickly recognize that the Ezekiel passage that I'm about to read um, and the sermon text for today are connected for the visions that Ezekiel the prophet and John the apostle received were similar. Uh, the vision of Revelation 21, 9 through 27 shows that the vision of Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48, which is all one, we're only going to read little portions of it, uh, we'll find its ultimate fulfillment in the new heavens and new earth. So what Ezekiel saw long, long ago before the coming of Christ will be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. Ezekiel was a 6th century BC prophet who ministered to Judah during the Babylonian captivity. Judah and Israel were taken away from their city and temple, but Ezekiel was shown a vision of the temple and the city of Jerusalem rebuilt with such glory and splendor and tremendous size that the message was so clear. Though Israel and Judah had been taken captive, God was not done with them, but would accomplish His purposes through them. God was not done with His people, but would continue to accomplish His redemptive purpose, which was to, through Israel, redeem a people from every tribe and tongue and nation, so that they would be their God, and He would be their God, and they would be His people. He would dwell in the midst of them for all eternity in a most immediate way. Uh, The glory of Ezekiel 40 through 48 and the temple that we see there and also the city pointed to the fact that the Lord would do something far greater in the future than anything Israel had ever seen before. Uh, This vision and the prophecy that we're about to read from in Ezekiel 40 and 43 and also 48 found its original and inaugurated fulfillment in the first coming of Christ. The prophecy will be fulfilled supremely and consummately at Christ's return when all things will be made new and when all will be made temple, the new heavens and new earth being filled with the glory of the Almighty as Revelation 21, 9 through 27 will show us. And so let us now go to the reading of the Old Testament text for today, starting with Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 1. In the 25th year of our exile, the prophet writes, At the beginning of the year, on the tenth day of the month, in the fourteenth year after the city was struck down, on that very day the hand of the Lord was upon me, and He brought me to the city. In visions of God, He brought me to the land of Israel, and set me down on a very high mountain, on which was a structure like a city to the south. When He brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze, with a linen cord and measuring reed in his hand. And he was standing in the gateway, and the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears, and set your heart upon all that I shall show you. For you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. 
And behold, there was a wall all around the outside of the temple area, and the length of the measuring reed in the man's hand was six long cubits, each being a cubit and a handbreadth in length. So he measured the thickness of the wall, one reed, and the height, one reed. And he went into the gateway facing east, going up its steps, and measured the threshold of the gate, one reed deep. Uh, This measuring uh, continues for some time all the way through chapter 42. When we come to chapter 43, we read these words, Ezekiel 43, 1. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Shabar Canal. And I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever." And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their whoring and by their dead bodies of their kings at their high places, by setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost besides my doorpost, with only a wall between me and them. They have defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed, so I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their whoring and the dead bodies of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and they shall measure the plan. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangement, its exits, and its entrances, that is, its whole design. And make known to them as well all its statutes, and its whole design, and all its laws, and write it down in their sight, so that they may observe all its laws, and all its statutes, and carry them out. This is the law of the temple. The whole territory on top of the mountain all around shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. In Ezekiel chapter 45, the focus of the vision shifts away from the temple and to the land of Israel and to the city of Jerusalem. And the very last verse of Ezekiel is 48.35. And it says this, And the name of the city... From that time on shall be, the Lord is there. The Lord is there. Let us now go to our sermon text for today, which is Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 through 27. Notice the similarity. Notice the fulfillment. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. And he spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. 
on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length is the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, twelve thousand stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, and the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amorist. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the streets of the city were pure gold, like transparent glass. And I I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on in it, it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So far the reading of God's most holy word, and our prayer is that the Lord would bless the preaching of His word. There have been times in our study of the book of Revelation uh, that a passage feels really overwhelming to me to preach Uh, This is because many of the visions shown to John in the book of Revelation are very complex. Um, The visions shown to John and recorded for us in the book of Revelation are are very interconnected. Uh, Many of the visions found early in the book of Revelation, for example, anticipate later visions. And visions found later in the book of Revelation harken back to earlier visions that we've already encountered Uh, so that the individual visions of the book of Revelation are very interwoven one with another. And the same thing can be said concerning the relationship between the book of Revelation and the rest of Scripture. Uh, The visions shown to John constantly connect uh, with Old Testament texts, showing how the prophecies, types, and shadows of, of of the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Christ during the church age or at the end of time. And so when I think of the book of Revelation, I think of a very rich tapestry. Uh, The closer you look at it, uh, the more you become aware of the complexity of its parts and all of its interconnectedness. You can imagine doing this with a tapestry, can't you? Coming up very close to it and seeing every single individual thread and where that thread goes and how they're all interwoven one thread with another. And so the closer you look, the more you see its complexity. But the further back that you stand... From the book, the more simple and clear and beautiful the picture appears. Uh, Here is one of those passages, though, where the interconnectedness of the book of Revelation, I think, is most apparent. I've already mentioned that Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 through 27, which we have just read, 
uh, shows the fulfillment of Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. Uh, you, you would be wise to go there and to linger for a while and to read that whole passage and to keep in mind what the book of Revelation here says. In both visions, the prophet and the apostle were taken in the spirit to a high mountain and they were shown a vision. Ezekiel saw a temple and then a city. Uh, John The city of Jerusalem is what he saw. Both the prophet and apostle were introduced, uh, instructed rather, to to measure uh, the temple, uh, Ezekiel, the city also. Uh, So much more, I think, could be said concerning the meaning of Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48. Um, But for now, just see that it finds its ultimate fulfillment in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, This will become even more apparent as we consider Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5 uh, next week, Lord willing. Uh, the imagery of Revelation 21, 9 through 27 is clearly rooted in the Old Testament, particularly Ezekiel chapters 40 uh, through 48. But the text that is before us today is also interconnected with other portions of the book of Revelation. Here in Revelation chapter 21, the elect of God are symbolized by the holy city, New Jerusalem, which John saw coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Notice that this is the focus of this entire text. We have here symbolized before us then the bride of Christ in all of her glory. Uh, Notice from the outset that this vision is not about a literal city, but it is about God's people gathered and kept secure in the new heavens and new earth, with the glory of God dwelling in the midst of them. That is what this entire passage is about. Not a literal city, but rather a city which symbolizes this, God dwelling in the midst of His people. Uh, This is the point of the text. Remember where we are. We are in the book of Revelation, which communicates truth via symbol. In this vision, John saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And this city, we are told, symbolizes God's people gathered and kept with God himself dwelling in the midst of them. Remember what Ezekiel said, that the name of this New Jerusalem would be, at the very last verse of Ezekiel's book, uh, said this, the name of the city from that time on shall be, the Lord is there. That is the point of it all. The Lord is there. The Lord is dwelling there in the midst of His people. In verse 2 of Revelation chapter 21, we are explicitly told that when John saw this city coming down out of heaven, what he was seeing was the bride of Christ adorned for her husband. That is the thing being symbolized by this city. Beginning in verse 9, everything comes to focus on this bride. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the full of the seven last plagues, and he spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So this new Jerusalem clearly symbolizes the church in her glorified and consummated state. The new Jerusalem represents the bride of Christ. The new Jerusalem represents the people of God, redeemed by Christ, whom God now dwells in the midst of. Uh, This really should not surprise us to find a physical thing, such as a city, representing people in the book of Revelation. Uh, Did not the city of Babylon represent all who were opposed to God and to Christ? 
We should be used to this by now. The city of Babylon was set forth, was put forth, not as a literal city, but as one that represented or symbolized all those who are opposed to God and Christ in this world. The new Jerusalem that we see here in Revelation chapter 21 is to be contrasted then with Babylon. Babylon was made desolate, but the Jerusalem from above is eternal. And do you remember how the church was represented by the temple way back in Revelation chapter 11? The temple and the altar and those who worshipped there were measured, but the courtyard was left exposed and given to the trampling of, of the nations or to the trampling of the Gentiles. Symbolized there was again the church, the people of God in the world, not in her glory there, but in her present condition as we now experience life. There in Revelation 11, it was the temple, this physical structure, the temple that stood for the church of God in this present evil age. Here in Revelation 21, the city of Jerusalem, this physical thing, symbolizes the church of God in glory. She is the bride of Christ. She is what Christ redeemed with his blood. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Why did Christ come? Why did he die? What did he redeem when he did die on that cross and raise from the dead on the third day? He redeemed the church his people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. It is them that he is bringing safely home. It is they that this new Jerusalem, this city from heaven, symbolizes here in Revelation chapter 21. And notice that the bride of Christ of Revelation chapter 21 is meant to be contrasted with another woman in the book of Revelation, namely the harlot of Revelation chapter 17. And so we have two women in this book, don't we? The harlot of Revelation chapter 17, she rode upon the beast. She represented the seductiveness of the world. But here we are introduced to another woman, namely the bride of Christ, who has been redeemed and who is brought safely home. Here she is in all of her glory. The fact that they are to be contrasted is very clear. I want you to listen carefully to the words that introduce both passages, both the passage that introduced the harlot and the passage that here introduces uh, the bride of Christ. Listen again to verse 9 of Revelation 21. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and he spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Do you hear that language, that introduction to the bride of Christ? And compare that to what we read in 17.1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Do you hear that the language is almost identical? In 17.3 we read, And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness or a desolate place, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. Whereas in 21.10 we read, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And so we have two women introduced to us in the book of Revelation. 
A vision is given to John concerning both of them. The Spirit of God does carry him away to a place so that he might have a perspective on the one woman and then the other. First, the harlot of Revelation 17, and then the bride of Christ in all of her glory in Revelation chapter 21. The difference here is that in Revelation chapter 17, John was taken away by the Spirit to a desolate place to observe and to consider the harlot. But here in Revelation chapter 21, John is taken up to a very high mountain and is shown a vision of this this woman who is the bride of Christ. It connects it with Ezekiel chapter 40, of course, but also it speaks to the character of both of these women. The one woman is going to go to desolation, but the other is going to go to glory. We have that indicated from uh, the very beginning. The meaning of the contrast, I think, is very hard to miss. Um, Though the godless pleasures of this world might seem to be so appealing at first, they are rotten to the core, and their end is desolation. And though the things of God might on the surface seem so unappealing, uh, to belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ is in the end a most glorious thing. Uh, The destination of those who... Uh, go after the harlot are, are here portrayed and the destination of those who pursue God through faith in Christ is also portrayed here in this passage as these two women are contrasted one with another. Uh, let us consider for a moment the bride of Christ in her glory then here in Revelation chapter 21. In verse 10, John says, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Uh, The first thing that John is struck by is the radiant light of the glory of God which fills the whole of this new Jerusalem who does stand for the bride of Christ. So the first thing that he is struck with is the radiant light of the glory of God. And what does this radiant light do except fill the whole of the new Jerusalem? In Revelation 4.3, John describes a vision that he saw of God on his heavenly throne. Remember, it went like this. And he said, And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. That was when John was caught up into heaven and did see the glory of God where he is enthroned now. But now John says that the whole city is filled with this same glory. Indeed, when all is made new, uh, the new heaven and new earth will become one, and God will dwell in the midst of His people. In verse 12, John describes this symbolic city as having a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed, and on the east three gates, and on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And so the image that is portrayed for us here is that this city is perfectly secure. Its walls are great, and they are very high. Angels stand guard at its gates. Uh, The gates are only for the elect of God to enter in. Uh, Remember that earlier in the book of Revelation, the twelve tribes of Israel did clearly symbolize all who are in Christ, both Jew and Gentile. These twelve gates have the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel, their names inscribed 
upon them. In verse 14 we read, And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And so the foundation of this city is the apostles of Christ. Uh, Those who belong to the city belong to it because they have built their life upon the testimony of Christ's apostles. Uh, The word of Christ and his apostles is their foundation. Entrance into this city depends, therefore, not upon ethnicity, but upon belief in the word of Christ. Indeed, this is exactly how Paul speaks of the church in Ephesians 2.18 and following. He says, For through Christ we both have access in one spirit to the Father. He's speaking of Jew and Gentile. Through Christ we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And you are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Here is how Paul describes the church even now. You've been made one in Christ Jesus. Your foundation is the testimony of the apostles and prophets, Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. And even now you are being built up into this holy temple in the Lord. It is here that the Spirit of God does dwell. In verse 15 of the book of Revelation, uh, we see... Uh, that Paul, or that uh, in the vision, this imagery continues to develop. Uh, we read, And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. Uh, the allusion to Ezekiel chapter 40 and following, I think, is very impossible to miss. Uh, what Ezekiel the prophet saw long ago, long before the coming of Christ, finds its ultimate fulfillment here and what John did see in Revelation 21, 9 and following. It is the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 16, the city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. And so the city that John saw was actually shaped like a cube, we learn. It's a little hard to imagine how this would be, but you can picture John measuring it with this measuring rod, 12,000 stadia uh, wide and deep and tall. Uh, Here is the size of it in terms that we can actually understand, for we do not know what a stadia is. Uh, This city is 1,365 miles wide from north to south and east to west, And it is also that tall, we are told. And so the top of it would reach the satellites, I suppose. Uh, The city is massive then. It's it's far larger than anything that ever existed within Israel. Far larger than the city of Jerusalem, the literal city of Jerusalem. In fact, it's nearly ten times as big as uh, the the, the nation of Israel itself. probably much more even than that. The number 12,000 is undoubtedly significant, though. It should remind us of the numbering of the 12 tribes of Israel in Revelation 7. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, so on and so forth. Do you remember the sealing of these tribes 
uh, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes so that the number eventually totaled 144,000 sealed by God. This city is 12,000 stadia cubed because it is the place where all of those sealed by God will dwell for all eternity. This, this place that we are seeing here in the book of Revelation is the dwelling place for God's people where the glory of God will dwell in the midst of them for all eternity. I think the cubed shape is also significant. Uh, cities are not typically measured like this, are they? Length times width times height. Uh, we might describe the length and width of a city. In fact, we do often talk that way, but never the height of it. Uh, the cubed shape is probably meant to remind us of the most holy place which housed the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle and later the temple. Uh, The meaning is this, whereas the glory of God was once confined to the most holy place in Israel's tabernacle and temple, and the new heavens and new earth all will be most holy place, for God's glory will fill all. The most holy place of the tabernacle and temple was cube-shaped, and here we see that the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven has the same dimensions, much, much larger, of course but the same dimensions in order for us to make a connection between the two things here. This is what is being symbolized, that the temple and the tabernacle before it was a type of a greater thing yet to come, namely God forever expanding His kingdom in the world and bringing people to worship Him so that He might dwell in the midst of them until at the very end of time all is made new and all will become most holy place where the glory of God fills all forever and ever. In verse 17, we read that John also measured its wall 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Uh, Notice again the multiple of 12, which signifies, um, which which is used in the measuring of the wall here. Uh, I think the, the point is this, that this wall creates an eternally secure place for the people of God. Um, 144 cubits is roughly 216 feet. Uh, Some commentators believe uh, this to be the height of the wall, where others believe it to be the width of the wall. I'm of the opinion that it is the width of the wall for two reasons. Uh, Remember that in Ezekiel chapter 40, which we read at the beginning of this sermon, uh, the prophet began by measuring the width or thickness of the wall of the temple that he saw there in his vision. Two, It seems to me that a 216-foot-high wall, though impressive to us by today's standards, would hardly seem appropriate for a city that has been described as having a height of 1,365 miles. Either way, the point is that the place is secure. The place is secure, and this signifies that God's people will be kept secure by God for all eternity. In verse 18, we read, The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. Um, Now that the size and the security of the city has overwhelmed us, we are confronted then with the beauty of the place. Here is what Dr. Johnson has to say concerning this in his commentary on the book of Revelation. Uh, The gold that John's hearers and we are familiar with is lovely and can be highly reflective, of course, when it is refined. 
but it in no way resembles the transparency of glass. And so the vision stretches and even breaks the paradigm of our experience in order to convey the precious value and purity that distinguishes the bride church's beauty and the eyes of her husband. The wall of the city is built with jasper, and the city itself is of pure gold like clear glass, John says. So precious and so holy and pure is this place that John has to describe it in this way. Such is the beauty of the bride of Christ that he has redeemed with his blood. Verse 19, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. I'm not going to try to read them again because I did badly at it the first time, and so I'll leave it off. But you see the jewels listed there in verses 19 through 20. It is likely that these stones are the same as the ones that were embedded within the breastplate of the high priest who would enter into the most holy place once per year on the Day of Atonement, as a representative of the twelve tribes of Israel under the Old Covenant. Are you tracking along with me? I hope you're reading your Bibles, Old Testament and New, so that you're able to track along with me. But under the Old Covenant, a high priest would serve for a time as a representative of all of God's people, and he would be adorned a particular way, and in particular here, in, in pertinent to this conversation, he would wear a breastplate, and on that breastplate there were 12 jewels embedded, and those 12 jewels did represent or symbolize the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter into the most holy place, not just for himself, but to atone for the sins of his own, his own sins, but also the sins of of all the people. And so here we see that many of these same jewels are mentioned in the book of Revelation. Uh, we're told that these uh, stones um, were adorned upon the foundation of the city. Again, what is the meaning except this? Everything is most holy place. Everything is most holy place in this new Jerusalem. It is the place where all of God's people do dwell. They need no mediator or high priest other than Christ himself, but they themselves do dwell in the presence of God and do enjoy his glory. It is likely that these stones are the same ones that were embedded within the breastplate of the high priest who would enter into the most holy place once per year on the Day of Atonement to represent the twelve tribes of Israel. Eight of the stones match the description of the gems on the high priest's breastplate in Exodus 28, 17 through 20, as listed in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So eight of the stones match perfectly. Four of them, it's a bit mysterious as to what they're referring to, but the other four are probably John's translation equivalents, given that he is not following the Septuagint exactly here. Uh, he's probably using a different phrase to describe the same jewels. Evidently, it was common in ancient times to call one jewel by different names, and that's probably what is going on here. But I think you understand the symbolism, right? The same jewels that did adorn the high priest's breastplate are here adorning the foundations of the new Jerusalem. This is the place for God's people to dwell, and it is all most holy place. The meaning is this, under the old covenant, one man, the high priest, did enter the most holy place once per year as a representative for all of Israel. But under the new covenant, all have access to the throne of grace through faith in Christ Jesus, who is our great high priest. But in the new heavens and new earth, all of God's people will dwell forever in the midst of the holy place, which will be filled forever with the glory of God Almighty. You see the progression then, don't you? You see the progression in the history of of redemption. Verse 21, 
And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Are you using your imagination? I hope so. hope you began to do so a while ago. Are you trying to envision what John saw? This massive city, cubed shape with tremendously high and thick walls, eternally secure, 12 gates, three on each side, angels guarding them, and the thing is beautiful. It is so beautiful. The gates themselves are not made of common stone, but each gate is carved out of one single pearl. And the streets are of pure gold, like transparent glass. So pure and precious is this gold that you can see through it somehow. Again, the beauty and unimaginable splendor of the place is emphasized. We should remember that we are encountering visions which which communicate truth via symbol. I'm not sure that we should expect literal streets of gold or pearly gates in the new heavens and the new earth. But by no means should this diminish the value of the new heavens and new earth in our minds, but far from it. In fact, our desire to enter into this world should grow as we see John straining to describe the beauty of what he saw. So precious will that place be that even the humble pavement will be gilded in gold, metaphorically speaking. Uh, That is what John is describing to us here. This is the vision that he received from the Lord. Verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. What a beautiful statement we have here in verse 22. Here again is the principle that we have encountered time and time again in the new heavens and new earth. God's glory will fill all. God will dwell in the midst of His people immediately, that is, without mediation or barrier. Under the old covenant, the temple housed God. You understand? It was the place where the glory of God did dwell. Under the old covenant, the temple of stone and that most holy place housed God. There the people would go up to worship God and to have fellowship with Him. And also the temple did serve to veil God so that the people would not be consumed by the glory of God as they stood before Him in their sin. And the new heavens and new earth, the people of God will enjoy God's glory having been made suitable for it by the shed blood of Christ. Indeed, the people of God will enjoy what Adam and Eve did enjoy in the garden. Better yet, they will enjoy the kind of consummate and eternal life that was offered to them, but was forfeited when they chose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil over the tree of life. Christ succeeded where the first Adam failed. And if we are in Him, we will enjoy the fruit of His labor. We will dwell with God and He with us by virtue of Christ's work for us and in us. Verse 23, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Notice that the text does not say that there will be no sun or moon, but that their light will not be needed within the city, given the glory of God. Uh, The glory of God does illuminate uh, this city. Notice also that it is God the Father who is the source of the light, and Jesus the Christ, the Lamb of God, who is the lamp or agent who mediates it. And I think it is interesting to notice that this has been the relationship between Father and Son throughout the history of redemption. The Father is the source of light, and the Son does reveal the Father to us. Verse 24, I'm moving quickly, I know, but we must. 
By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. This is the end goal of God's redemption, to redeem a people for himself from every tongue, tribe, and nation. The earliest chapters of Genesis reveal that this was the goal of God's redemption. The rest of the Old Testament makes it plain that this was the goal of God's redemptive purposes. God's purpose was to bring salvation to the nations through the Christ. Listen to example for, to, to Isaiah 49.6 where God speaks to his servant saying, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Here is one example of many that we can find throughout the Old Testament that God's aim was upon redeeming a people for himself from every tongue, tribe, and nation. The book of Revelation has provided multiple perspectives on the end result. In Revelation 7, John saw a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Here in 21-24, people and kings from all nations are present in the new heavens and the earth, and they do flock to the city of God to enter into the gates and to offer up Gifts to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Verse 27 we read, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so, brothers and sisters, it is the grace of God that makes the difference. It is those who are holy and pure who do enter into this city and none other. And these are holy and pure because they have believed upon Jesus the Christ who died to cover their sins. And these are able to believe because God has made them able and willing by the working of the Holy Spirit. And this He determined to do from before the creation of the world, having written their names in this Lamb's book of life. There's a lot to absorb there, isn't, isn't there, in, in these few verses. Um, Indeed, the image of this city is most glorious. And I'm hoping that you're able to to slow down. I've been very rapid in my presentation of these things this morning. But I'm hoping that you're able to slow down and to visualize it and to think, what does it mean? What does all of this symbolize exactly? It is rich, of course. But as we conclude, brothers and sisters, we must remember that the image shown to John of the holy city Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, is not about a place, but it is about God with His people. That is the point of it all. It is not about a literal city, but this literal city does symbolize this fact, God dwelling in the midst of His people. This vision, like most everything else in the book of Revelation, is not to be interpreted in a strictly literal fashion, but as symbolic, for this is clearly the intent of the author. What it says is real, and it is also true. What it describes will certainly come to pass, but the description is symbolic so that what we see stands for something else. What do we see? A city. 
with very high walls and a very secure foundation, a city that is radiant in beauty, a city filled with the glory of God so that the sun and moon aren't even needed. But that city that we see in visionary form as communicated to us by John stands for something else. It is symbolic. When John saw the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, It was not so that we might understand something of what the place will look like, that is the new heavens and the new earth, but so that we might understand something about the relationship between God and His people. It is about people and not a place. This entire vision, remember, was from the beginning said to be a description of the bride, the wife of the Lamb. For the angel did first say to John, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And so what we see, therefore, is not to be taken literally, for Christ is not going to be wed to a city, to a physical structure, but He is wed to His people, the church, whom He has redeemed with His blood. The city symbolizes the bride, who is the church, with God in the midst of her. If after reading or hearing this text, your mind goes only to the pearly gates and to the streets of gold, then I'm afraid you've missed the point entirely. For the point is not the place, but God dwelling in the midst of His people. What makes the new heavens and earth heavenly, it is the enjoyment of communion with the God who made us and the Christ who redeemed us. He is the groom, we the bride. Just as you would expect a bride and groom to look forward to life together more than the place where they dwell, so too our supreme longing should be for communion with God and Christ and not the place. Are you, are you understanding what I'm saying here? How many people, when we begin to talk about heaven, say, how nice that place will be? It's not the point. Indeed, the place will be nice. But what we ought to say is, how I long to be in the presence of my God and my Savior. Christ Himself did speak about the place which the book of Revelation here portrays. But I want you to listen to His emphasis. It is the same as the one that I'm making here. It's the same that the book of Revelation makes. It is not about the place, but it is about the relationship between He and His people. To, to To His disciples, Christ said this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. Uh, Brothers and sisters, I do hope that you long for heaven. I hope that you long to see the new Jerusalem as it were. I hope that you long to see the new heavens and the new earth. And while it is true that there is much to look forward to in that place, may your love for God be such that communion with Him and with the Christ whom He has sent, that that thing be the thing that you anticipate most, your communion with God and Christ. After Christ told His disciples about the place that He would prepare for them so that He might be with them and they with Him, He did also tell them how to get there, didn't He? And here we have that most famous passage when one of His disciples, Thomas, said to Him, Lord, we do not know where You are going. How can we know the way? And how did Jesus respond to doubting Thomas? He said to them, Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
Friends, it is only those who have faith in Christ who will come into the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, and into the house of God that has been prepared for His people, so that He might dwell with them and they with Him for all eternity. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank You that You have given us Your holy word. We thank You that You have given it to us in such a way where we can understand it, and also where it sticks with us, Lord, certainly we can visualize what John saw, what he describes to us here in Revelation chapter 21, this massive city coming down out of heaven, prepared by you, God, for us. Lord, may we understand what it symbolizes, and may we crave that thing that is eternal, unending communion with you. We thank you, Father, for your love for us. We know that you are holy and righteous. Uh, Lord, indeed, to stand before you in our sin would be a most terrifying thing, But you, through Christ Jesus, his work accomplished on the cross, have made a way for us to come before you and to call you Abba, Father. You have made a way for us to come before you and to enjoy you, Lord, because you have taken away all of our sin. We are grateful, Father, for Christ Jesus, our Lord, who is our Savior and King. I pray for those who here now are listening to this sermon, Lord, that you would work upon their hearts. If they do not yet know you, may they come to faith in Christ Jesus. I pray that they would come to you through him. It is the only way. And for those who do know you, Lord, strengthen our faith. Make our love for you grow more deep. May we truly long for the new heavens and the new earth. May we long to see you face to face. It's in Christ's name that we say these things and all of God's people say, Amen.